and welcome to the VSA Capital Tech and Transitional Energy podcast on Thursday, the 28th of July. Now, regular listeners will know that Phil Smith, our analyst, is on holiday this week. They'll also know that although I'm working a little bit, I'm down at my house in Cornwall and on a lot of courses. Well, actually on the same course, but it's the golf course. Therefore, we're not totally up to speed this week on what is going on in the tech and transitional energy uh, sector, although there are a few things that are going on that I've been looking at. Uh, but instead, I have decided to invite my head of sales, David Scriven, uh, just to have a bit of a general chat about uh, the market and some of my views of what's going on in the market and with our industry and that sort of thing. So if you're just looking for tech and transitional energy, maybe time to turn off. But if you're interested in what I'm thinking at the moment, and I do a lot of thinking when I'm down here, uh, then carry on listening and we'll just have a chat uh, with David. David, hi. Good morning to you, sir. It's a pleasure to be with you and it's going to be very interesting to uh, listen to your current thoughts because we've just seen the Fed raise rates by 75 beeps. That's the steepest since uh, Volcker in the 80s. Now, both you and I were around then. Now, stocks have ratted off the sort of Powell comment rates at neutral, but um, how do you feel things? How do you see things going forward? What do you see the market? What do you, how do you feel about the market in general? Okay, well, look, I think the thing about the market is there are three, currently three big uncertainties and markets hate uncertainties. Uh, the first, obviously, is the war in Ukraine. Uh, we just don't know how long it's going to go on for or what the outcome is. That's uncertainty number one. Uncertainty number two is China, uh, because we are seeing a sort of Cold War two. Uh, we're seeing the zero COVID policy. We're seeing a collapse of the property sector over there. And we just don't know quite how China is going to fit into the global marketplace going forward. And we almost certainly won't know until the 20th uh, Chinese Communist Party Congress, which looks like it'll be in November. So that's another uncertainty. And then uh, bringing up the point that you started the question with, the third uncertainty is inflation and interest rates. And we just don't know whether the inflation we're seeing at the moment is transitory, and we'll come back down again, and thus whether inflation rates sorry, interest rates are going to go to the sort of levels that we're seeing at the moment or a little bit higher and stop or whether they're going to keep going up. And those three uncertainties mean that the market will struggle to go higher. Now, I do think that at the moment, most of that in terms of, of where we stand as a market uh, valuation is already in the price. So we're sort of on the bottom is my view, um, but we ain't going up until those uncertainties are out of the way. So there is value in the market, but we may not see it realised for some time. So on the market, that's what my position is, really. I'd just like to sort of throw in, because we've both been in the markets for quite some period of time, with the market um, fearing recession down the road, what I do note is that unemployment is around about 4%. Now, we've both seen it much higher at sort of 5, 6, 7, 8, or even 11%. And I think, um, you know, job openings are still very robust. So if there is a recession on the cards, as things stand at the moment, um, it may not be as severe as perhaps people fear. Well, as you say, Dave, we've both been around far too long. I came to the market in 1984. I've seen recessions before. The markets continue on a long term basis going up. Equities are fundamentally a good investment, particularly if you get the right companies. Um, we also, of course, both remember, Dave, you know, interest rates. Uh, being at sort of 10%, even 15% when we left the uh, the ERM. Uh, and of course, we probably also both remember having mortgages 
back in the 90s uh, where we were paying mortgage rates of sort of 12%. And then, of course, we entered into the housing negative equity situation between 92 and 93. Um, I remember I took out a bridging loan. I think I was paying something like 16% on my bridging loan. But, of course, I bought a house in Chiswick to do that for £293,000, and it's now worth considerably more than that. So, you know, actually, out of adversity can come opportunity. And a great quote that I tell people is the late Ayrton Senna used to say, you can't really overtake racing cars uh, when it's sunny, but when it's raining, you can overtake 15. And I think that is the sort of period we're in at the moment. There is so much uncertainty, so much going on. Actually, there are a lot of opportunities out there. Indeed, indeed. Well, when you talk about the, the housing market, that's sort of dear to my heart at the moment, but I won't go into that in much detail. But with supply shortages, the market is still quite robust, even though we're seeing some signs of weakening both in the US and perhaps here. Um, the other thing I'll just quickly mention, I don't know whether you want to make any specific comment, is we've got a plethora of results coming out. So it's going to be very interesting to see how the market reacts. It's pretty mixed today with some big names, pluses and minuses. Um, yeah, look, it's it's a reporting period, isn't it? And everyone's running around. I think that, you know, the market in general, though, if that's just reporting. I mean, look, the fact of the matter is that we are going into probably recession. So the numbers are going to start to look worse and worse and worse. But the market is almost certainly already taking that into account. I mean, if you look at Rio yesterday, um, you know, its profits collapsed. They halved their dividend. And actually, the stock is now higher than it was two days ago. And that tells you the market already knew that and is now looking forward to the future. Now, on the property prices, uh, I'm obviously very aware that you're, you're buying a new house, David, but I think that comes down to the fact that people are wondering where to put their money. It's all about asset classes. Um, and there's been a huge move uh, into in and out of different asset classes, should we say. Uh, a lot of money actually has come out of equity markets. I mean, the number of stocks quoted on the equity markets is is diminishing almost um, daily, dare I say it. Um, housing has remained as a very strong asset class because people just feel it's it's great security, it's safe, there's a limited number that you can buy. And so housing stocks as an asset class has continued to go up. And actually, again, you know, interest rates aren't that severe, probably will continue to, to hold its value. I don't see a housing collapse actually coming up necessarily. The asset class actually that's had a huge influx of money, and I'm talking trillions and trillions of dollars, of course, is private equity. And private equity now is actually is a bit of a scam. I mean, it's spinning plates because they just, you know, even though some equity values have, have halved or more, private equity just keep marking up the value of the holdings they've got. And then when they get to the exit point, because there's no market to float it on, they say, I know, let's launch a continuation fund and we'll put in even more investors' money. And, you know, when we put it in the new continuation fund, we'll, we'll value it even higher. But there's no regulation on private equity. There's no looking at what the real valuations are. They just keep marking up the value of their assets every year, higher and higher and higher. And yet here's an industry that works on gearing and interest rates are going up. It should actually be going down. Now, I don't think that we can have a collapse of private equity, even though we should, because they just create their own valuation. So how does it collapse? The problem you've got, though, is that, of course, there's no exit route for them other than these continuation funds. And at some stage, asset allocators, who I would say aren't always the smartest people because they tend to follow trends, are going to say no more money into private equity. Let's put it somewhere else. And then private equity has got a real problem. They've got no exit routes for their companies. 
I guess what they'll do is they'll end up merging all their companies together and just trying to keep the plate spinning. But private equity is a place you do not, in my view, want to go anywhere near at the moment because it is a Ponzi scheme. But if we steer away on your guidance here on private equity and sort of slightly change the theme and move from markets to exchanges, um, bearing in mind some of the things you've mentioned as a backdrop of, of caution, but why do you feel so strongly about Aquis as an exchange? Look, I think Aquis is a fascinating situation, actually, and I think a lot of people don't really understand or look past it. I mean, I think, again, you know, sitting in the UK, we think the London Stock Exchange is wonderful, you know, because it's our own exchange, it's very strong, everybody talks about it. But the reality is, if you look at an international point of view, the London Stock Exchange consistently loses market share. And actually, its reputation is not that good, particularly with AIM. If you travel around overseas, the reputation of AIM is absolutely appalling. And the number of stocks on AIM has shrunk from like nearly 2,000 to about 800. The number of nomads operating was nearly 100. It's now down below, I believe, 30. I mean, you know, it is not a growth market, the London Stock Exchange. Actually, sadly, it's, a, it's an ungrowth or a declining market. Um, and yet, as a, uh, a financial centre, which London is, we're still one of the leading international financial centres of the world. It's incredible. The UK would not be what it is without London and the financial centre. We need a brilliant exchange. And what drives a brilliant exchange is competition. And the London Stock Exchange, unfortunately, has had no competition for four or five hundred years. It needs it, particularly in this post-Brexit Britain. And if you look at it, other major financial countries have competition. America being the classic has the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. So we need the NASDAQ of London. And Aquis is the NASDAQ of London because what they've done is they've brought in, first of all, institutional shareholders into Aquis PLC. So the institutions actually want to back it. They brought in modern thinking and modern technology to make it an easier and smoother market. They've adapted the rules to the internet world. I mean, the London Stock Exchange is just not adapted to the internet world. The cost of floating now is just absurd. It, you know, you're no change from a million pounds for a small company to float on the market and it'll take them six months. That is ludicrous. You know, we have to get away from this, simplify things in the modern era. I'm not saying you should reduce the regulation at all, but you've just got to make it simpler because if it's simpler, lawyers spend less time and therefore your bills come down. And I mean, at the moment, you're seeing lawyers make absolute fortunes because everything's so complicated and so much. The lawyers have to spend so much time. And of course, the taxi meter is running. You're seeing accountants make fortunes because everything is going on. And yet investment banks, funny enough, and brokers, although we get not the whole time, we don't make any money. In fact, you know, the, the broking world is basically having a race to the bottom. Aquis would be fresh new thinking and it's competition. Now, the one thing that two things probably have been holding back Aquis. One is that it's had a history in its past guises of NEX and plus markets and all this sort of thing. But secondly, the retail platforms were not prepared to link it in so that SIPs and ISAs could trade it. Now, Hargreaves Lansdowne, who control about 50% of the UK SIPs and ISAs, which is, by the way, wrong in its own right, um, they have now put Aquis onto their platform so that you can trade that. I think that Aquis is going to become the NASDAQ of London. In fact, eventually, and I know we're an advised Aquis, so I'd be very good what I say, but eventually it surely has to be acquired 
by a big group because it would be just so tempting to park your bus right next door to the London Stock Exchange that frankly is going backwards. And in a nutshell, David, there you go. There we go. And uh, people can find uh, a lot of information on their website, not least for the fact that in their Q2 newsletter, they talked about Hargreaves and Lansdowne. So that's very positive development. So uh, encouraging trends for them. And talking of trends, um, you know, what and looking at thematics in general, what's your view on the energy future? Yeah, look, I mean, it's it, you, any newspaper you pick up, you're going to be hearing about it with gas prices going to the roof, Nord Stream 1 being turned off, Nord Stream 2 certainly not being built. Um, we are going through a transitional energy revolution, which is why, you know, at BSA Capital, we are very focused and have been now for nearly 10 years on transitional energy. Uh, my view is we will eventually end up with a, what's known as SWB, which is solar wind batteries, as our main energy supply. Um, but, you know, you can't ignore gas. We are going to have gas for another 50 years. I am a believer that we should be fracking. I think the anti-fracking group are just, frankly, crazy. We know it's safe. We know it will benefit the economy of the UK. It'll benefit the, the lives of the people who live locally because they'll get more money. They'll get support with communities and schools and that sort of thing. Um, of course, the Russians don't want us to frack because they want us to be beholden to their gas and they've got their way at the moment. You know, um, so I think the energy future is basically solar, wind and batteries. Uh, we do need a lot of work on batteries and people know that we spend a lot of time on batteries. I'm not going to get into that debate on this particular uh, podcast, um, but we do also need gas. The UK has plenty of it. Um, you know, oil is not about to be switched off completely for some time. So we need to think about oil as well. Um, but yes, we are in a transitional energy revolution. And look, but the oil revolution was a sort of over 100 years old. If you'd started investing in, in oil stocks 100 years ago when oil was just being developed, you would be a very rich man. So today, actually, to become a very rich person or intergenerational richness, shall we say, uh, you want to be investing in uh, the transitional energy revolution. Are we perhaps getting a little bit caught out by being concerned on short term factors, e.g., for example, you know, revenue delays for companies? And for example, today, although the stock is up, um, Ceres announced that um, due to timings on licensing deals, I get the sense that, you know, revenues are going to be uh, lower than expected, expected for the six months. So is this clouding this strong outlook for the sector? I don't know. I mean, look, it's interesting. I mean, Ceres is a, is a great company and the, the two sort of flagship stocks we have in hydrogen are Ceres and ITM. And the great thing for them is they've both got good corporate structures and they've both got a lot of cash so they can ride it all out. But, you know, it, it's um, the market plays in a, in a classic case uh, where it gets very, very excited about something short term, raises stocks up far too high. It then thinks, oh my goodness, it's not happening as quickly as we'd wanted. So the stocks then come flying back down again. They then get sort of lost in for years whilst they just get on with their business. And then the market undervalues them for a while as they start to actually go into serious production and mass take up. I mean, you know, I saw that classically with, with Arm. I was very lucky in, in the beginning of the 90s to, to meet with Sir Robin Saxby. It was just Robin those days, Robin Saxby, now Sir Robin Saxby, and just 12 people. And, you know, it's fascinating. Watch the market get hugely overexcited with ARM, put it on a P of 500. And then we had the dot com crash uh, and the stock just collapsed down, you know, almost 90 percent or something because the market went, oh, no, no, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. 
Of course, it did happen. In the end, it was you know incredibly successful and probably one of the UK's most successful companies. But that's the way the market works. And of course, David, you spent a lot of time you know talking mining stocks in your career, and you have exactly the same thing in the mining industry, don't you? With the uh, the curve, should we call it? The Lausanne curve. Yeah, absolutely, you do. Yeah. So you have that. Um, excitement surrounding the discovery and sometimes the market will sort of capitalize it as in full production so um yeah you do indeed so you it do. Happens it's amazing david it happens time and time again markets get very very excited short term and then you have to sort of sell out step back for a while let it fall back and then actually just as you think the market's given up hope completely that's when you go in and buy it yeah 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 sort of fear and greed so to speak of the, the big um thematic there um just another quick thing on the <clears throat> on this subject um I, I noted that um pensana got uh, a green bonds certification from cesario cesero um is and we know about green bonds but is this going to grow even more as as sources of finance is this um what what, what are your thoughts on that um yeah, look, I think, first of all, you know, we've just had the publication of the UK Critical Metals Report. And I think one of the keys, uh, and we've made some comments uh, socially on social media now about our views of the UK Critical Metals Report, which it lacks one big thing, actually, and that is who the hell's going to fund it all and how are they going to be incentivised to fund it all, which is the key to the whole thing. Sadly, the government missed that, but that's politicians for you. I think, though, that, you know, the whole secret, if you look at what China did, to become so dominant in the critical metals was they set up all these processing facilities that all the ore was being shipped to China to be processed so that then they could build the battery factories and that's how they became dominant. So we need to look at what they've done over the last 30 years and say, OK, we need to a certain extent to do the same sort of thing, which means building process facilities, which luckily, as you say, Pensana are building a rare earth one, Alchemy PLC are building a, a, a lithium hydroxide one, um, so we are starting to do that and you do need innovative funding because the fund managers, the institutions are going to struggle to fund the startup of some of these processing facilities. They might come in later, but you need government subsidies, you need government support, you need, I think, yes, green bond issues and this sort of thing because this is actually ESG orientated because we're trying to change the whole dynamics and go through this transition energy revolution. So it does need some quite clever, smart thinking and wrapping the whole thing up into the green environment. And of course, it's very difficult when you look at mining operations to go, is that part of the green environment? Well, yes, if the mining operation for a critical metal is lithium and it's then going on to become your EV, which is what we're all trying to drive you know, head towards, um, because it, that is deemed as green, then actually that becomes green. It, you've got to look at the whole ecosystem, the whole cycle, the whole chain to understand the picture. Uh, and of course, we do at VSA, you know, we look at the, all the mines. We've been looking at lithium mines now for over 10 years uh, and all the other critical metals, the processing, the batteries, the, the manufacturing, right through to the EVs and the e-scooters, where we also act for companies in that space. So. I think innovative thinking is required, and I think those sort of things, that's just part of it, David. You need to have other innovative ways of getting these things done. Certainly, we certainly have the need here because there's zero lithium production capacity in Europe, and I think Europe will have something like 700 gigawatts of gigafactories by 2025. So there's plenty of need for lithium hydroxide, and we don't want to rely um, on China. Um, so, um, 
Indeed, indeed. Now, on that and the discussions we've had in general, where is your money invested? This is the critical question, isn't it? Well, yeah, look, I mean, I think that uh, I always say to people that I'm a, um, obviously this is my third, BSA Capital is my third investment bank or brokerage business, you know what I mean, after Oriel and Blue Or, So I'm a sort of entrepreneurial um, broker, investment banker, but I do run quite a lot of my own money. I own my own pension fund, I own my own personal money. I run my mother's IHT fund. So people do often ask me where my money is. And um, so I'm happy basically to say as well, I'm not particularly uh, frightened of it. And a lot of the themes are themes that uh, VSA Capital um, are involved in. And VSA Capital, of course, is one of my largest holdings. Uh, I have a pretty big holding in, in uh, an investment trust in the UK, which you, you actually know quite well, David, which is the Vietnam Enterprise Investment Trust Limited, known as Vale. Um, it was set up and founded by uh, Dominic Scriven, who is, of course, your cousin. Um, but I think the Vietnamese economy just looks absolutely spectacular. I think Dominic Scriven is exceptionally talented. Uh, I think as an investment trust, you know, it's sort of two billion type investment trust. There's plenty of liquidity. It trades at way too big a discount. Vietnam as an economy is probably the fastest growing economy in the world. I think the opportunities there are quite amazing. You just buy it and sit on it for 20 years. So, you know, that is a pretty big holding for me. Um, another big holding I have actually is, is a small, um, and I would say a lot of the other holdings I have are special situations where, you know, my view in this market is you've either got to know everything about something or nothing. Sitting in the middle ground is always a dangerous position to be. So I have a very big, big position in a company called Tectonic Gold. It's traded on uh, the Aquas Exchange. Um, we are the advisors to it. Um, but I bought in, admittedly, at a pretty good price when, when everything was sort of looked as though it was going to be horrific. Um, but they're doing a lot of very interesting things in the gold space in Queensland and also some quite interesting things in Africa in terms of mining. You know, the, what I like about this company is it's all about making money. There are no egos here. This is a case of where the management team just want to make shareholders money. That's where their money is and so I'm backing them too. I also have a pretty big position in a company again that we floated on Aquis called Silverwood Brands. Um, it's run by a guy called Andrew Gerry who was the CEO of Lush still owns about 20% of Lush. He's also the chairman of Hotel Chocolate, uh, which isn't in everybody's good books at the moment, but I think he's a very, very talented guy. And again, I'm backing him really um, because I think his talents are, are great. And so it's, um, you know, I'm backing management. I'm a great believer actually in backing management, I think in general, I would say. Um, I think that's, you know, you never go wrong doing that. Indeed. That's three of them. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sad, terrible. I'm just sort of think about what I do own, David, isn't it? I'm down here in Cornwall. I'll tell you, what, actually, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of others that I own that I think are interesting. And I'm a very directional investor. OK, I have my, my two other biggest positions. Are, I own a, a position in uh, the Premier Mighton Global Infrastructure Fund. It's run by a guy called Jim Wright. I've had money with him now for quite a long time. He sets out to make you 9% per annum out of global infrastructure. He has pretty much every year made me 9% per annum. So I and, and I roll up my income into capital. 
So it's just grown and grown and grown. So I think that's a great, anybody who just wants 9% a year, that's a great stock. And actually the other one that I have quite a big position, and again, the reason it's quite a big position is just because it's grown so dramatically from when I first invested it in, is the Smith & Williamson um, Artificial Intelligent Fund. Uh, it's now renamed the Sanlam Artificial Intelligent Fund. Uh, I bought it when it's still at Smith & Williamson, run by a guy called Chris Ford, uh, and it uses artificial intelligence to run the fund. And again, it's been a spectacular success. So those are my five top holdings, what it's worth. Um, take it or leave it. But I am a great believer in directional investing, i.e. what do you think are the growth areas? Put money into it. And I'm also a great believer in special situations. So you eliminate sort of market movements or FTSE in the movements or macro things by being very specific. I think finally, what I would say is I actually have quite a lot of exposure in total into Cornish mining. I do think there's going to be an enormous revival in, in the Cornish mining industry. It will probably take 10 years. That's so not for everybody. Um, but I think the returns that can be made over that 10 year period uh, could be absolutely spectacular. Thank you for, the, for your thoughts on that. And also your compliments towards my cousin. I have great respect for him. And yes, I mean, it's GDP. I think it's around about 7%. They've got a trade surplus in Vietnam. And yes, that discount is 16%, but they are buying back um, stocks. So hopefully that will narrow somewhat over time. And then on some of the other holdings, I think Tectonic, they were slightly delayed in uh, just due to weather um, on uh, getting their uh, they're drilling underway so i think we'll see some more drilling so perhaps some news from them in the future to look forward to and i think that um you know i spoke was speaking with phil last week on the technology podcast and we've been seeing some encouraging technical trends in some of the uh, tech stocks in the us namely 50-day moving averages giving you buy signals and obviously we had a strong day yesterday on the nasdaq so hopefully that's going to be a philip for your um AI uh, fund with San Lambstroke, uh, Smith and Williamson. So um, I think that's uh, very encouraging. And Cornish Mining, I think what well, the great thing here is the thematic and also it's UK. So I think people, we've seen a lot of comments in um, you know, places like CityWire and what have you of people who are very interested in this area. So we've got that uh, podcast too, which we'd encourage people to listen into. So um, Perhaps we could um, explore a little bit further on VSA. How does uh, VSA standing in the market, how it differentiates itself and some of the things that we're doing that uh, support that? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, our industry, should we call it the stockbroking or the boutique investment bank industries, is not actually a great place to be, probably, David, as you know. Um, you know, when we came into the market, there were fixed commissions of 1.65% and the brokers made an absolute fortune and commission rates have just come down and down and down. And now, you, you know, they're, they're two basis points only sort of thing. There is no money to be made in secondary research and trading commissions. You know, you make all of your money basically in, in capital raisings and, and M&A. Uh, but even there, it's it's a highly competitive industry. I mean, as an example, I was just, you may have seen this morning that Ince Group, um, who bought Arden, obviously, you know, six months ago or so, or announced it six months ago, are raising money at 5p. Uh, when they did the deal with Arden, their stock was trading at 60p. So they thought that Arden shareholders thought they got 10 million pounds worth of Ince stock. Actually, they've only got a million pounds worth of Ince stock. You know, Arden was one of the great firms. It's just it's just completely destroyed any value that there was. And it is very difficult in our industry to 
to create shareholder value but that's what i want to do i mean there's no point doing this game in my view i'm the the, the largest single shareholder in vsa capital i want value so you know here we are sitting in an industry that's basically heading towards the bottom um what we have done is said look you know there's no point trying to compete head on with our competitors you, you just you can't win doing that we, we would lose so let's find areas where we don't basically have competition and so what we have very much done and the, by the way what i'm saying here i think applies to every company don't go head to head with a load of competitors find niche areas to grow in so the sort of things we do we've talked about transitional energy we're a leader across the whole value chain there we've talked about cornish mining we're a leader there in cornish mining we've talked about aquis we're a leader in terms of aquis we're probably the number one advisor on the aquis exchange if it ever does become the nasdaq of london yeah we're in a fantastic position we also and you could argue is this this a this is a pro or a con but we we're probably about the only firm that really understands china and we have an office obviously in shanghai haven't been able to visit it for quite a few times and obviously you know the relationship with china is difficult but you can't ignore the fact that it is the world's second largest economy it's very important for things like mining and various other things and yet we're one of the leaders in doing business with china and so that's sort of how we we approach things we're always open-minded uh we'll always talk with people i mean i've talked with so many people about trying to do deals here and there but it's amazing all deals in our industry go wrong either on valuation or ego um you could argue that <laughs> i have the same problem but we are a listed company vsa capital is listed on aquis we have a valuation of about four million pounds actually we're trading not far above net asset value so you know i think we're probably correctly valued uh we do make money uh, we've made money for the last six years so again i would actually say we're in quite a strong position we also talking of, of you know niches we have uh, obviously uh, some joint ventures uh, in africa with FIDA investments and Moshi Capital, and, and we're probably fairly unique in what we can do in Africa compared with other brokers as well. So again, I think the point is that we look and try and find areas that other people aren't competing in. Um, and we push the boundaries a bit. You know, we were we tend to be very early on. You know, we were incredibly early into transition energy and lithium. We were talking about it in 2013 when nobody else was. So we do tend to be early, but I'd rather be early than late. Indeed, so, uh, I fully support that, and I think it's very important to have um, sort of global tentacles, as you've um, just alluded to. And I think another thing is that the way we're set up, because I've worked for bulge bracket firms in the past, and you know we have um, <clears throat> a team in place, and we all work uh, as a team and communicate very well together. And I think that's very helpful too, because it means that you can turn around things quickly. You can you know, focus minds and um, share views and then uh, buy into um, the niche or the concept or the theme or the company that you want uh, together. And then that means everybody's on board rather than sometimes if you work for larger organisations, it's a bit more disparate. And, um, you know, sometimes things come out of the blue rather than a consensus. Uh, that is true. Now, I'll tell you what, David, I think we've been chatting for about half now. I think that's probably quite long enough. What I would say is to anybody listening to this, if they want to know anything more about some of my thoughts uh, or VSA thoughts or more about VSA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then just um, direct message me. Uh, give me a call. Send me an email. Uh, always happy to talk to people. Uh, David, thanks for coming in and sitting in Phil's place. I hope that people enjoyed the slight change of subject. Um, I think Phil is back next week, so we'll be back to normal. Pleasure. Thanks.